scholar. Good, good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to Fourth Avenue Church. My name is Dean. I'm one of your ministers here. If you're just joining us, I always like to, to just let you know you're coming to a broken, imperfect group of people here. So if you're looking for the perfect church and the perfect people, you're not going to find it here. I don't think you'll find it anywhere, but you won't find it here. But you will find people who are committed to love each other and to follow Jesus as best as we can by his power, not by ours. And one of the things that I love, and you saw it today, I love that this is a place where we can come and bring just who we are to the Lord. I love that. And you see the energy and the passion of our children's and youth ministers. And then Nathan, I, I don't know where you ended up, man. I appreciate your heart. I too have struggled with anxiety in the past. And I love that we can get up here and tell that as part of our coming to the table. We bring everything to the table. Isn't that beautiful? So if you're coming and just kind of checking out, is this a place for me? This is. You belong here. And that's part of what we'll talk about. I want to begin just by reading the scripture uh, that we'll be looking at today in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 12. Paul is writing to a conflicted church in a conflicted world, and this is what he has to say. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. And if one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Let's pray. Father, I pray as the psalmist did so long ago, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Have you ever thought about how the real difference makers in the world listen deeply to the world around them. Uh, the real difference makers, the real influencers throughout Christian history, this has been true. Leaders in the culture, this has been true. But the real people who make a difference, who influence, who nurture and caretake the world, listen deeply to the world around it. I don't mean for its philosophy. I don't mean for its mindset. I mean, if we listen closely to the world around us, sometimes we can hear the places where the gospel is needed the most. 
If we listen to what's going on around us, we will hear the places where the hope and the power and the promise of God is most needed in our world. Had an experience of that just this past week. It, about two or three times a year, I have the opportunity as a volunteer with the sheriff's office to be there, help train some of them, and then we uh, get to be part of their uh, graduation. I get to pray a prayer blessing over them. And then we go downstairs in the, in the historic courthouse and we have a reception there. And I'm, I'm there with a lot of the command staff and just leaders in our law enforcement community here. And I heard them talking about how hard it has been in the last year, really just in even the last few months, of serving in a community where people are not, again, leaders of our community's words. People don't just disagree. They have to disagree with venom and with contempt and disrespect and sometimes even violence. And I saw leaders in our community saying, oh my goodness, what are we supposed to do here? Do you hear the need for gospel, for what Paul has to talk about here from our community leaders? I was talking with one of our more vocal folks in the sheriff's office and the leadership there. And I'm just joking around with him. I said, can't you do something about this? I mean, you have a loud voice. Why don't you just tell them to stop? And he said, they won't listen. They won't listen. Here's what I think is powerful. One of the reasons we come to Scripture is because it gives us hope. Uh, one of the ways God gives us hope is we get to see the fails of people and communities and churches that have gone before us so that we can seek the power of God to do differently and better in our day. And I think Paul is speaking exactly to the atmosphere that I heard our sheriff's office crying out for. The world is crying out for a voice that says in a conflicted community, because they were fighting in the Corinthian church, not just in the world around us, their church was grappling with different personalities. They, they literally had, go read the beginning of the book of 1 Corinthians, I'm a Paul, and I'm a Paulus, and I'm a Peter, and I'm of Jesus, as if they're different competing groups. And then right before this, he talks about they're dividing over wealth and status when they come to the Lord's Supper, and then they'll divide over whose gift is better. And Paul speaks a word of hope and challenge, not just to a conflicted world, but to a church that's intended to model that for the world. If we listen closely, we will hear the places and the voices in our world that is crying out for us to be different. And what I notice when I come to this text, here's the thing. When Paul is trying to pull together a church in a world that is pulling itself apart, the first thing he says is a simple biblical truth. This is what he said. God put us together. Don't miss this. It sounds so simple, but it's so profound. He said, God put us together. When you come and sign up... <laughs> To be a follower of Jesus, you don't get, in one sense, the option of unity. It's not an option. When you come into the body of Christ, you come into an organic unity. You come into oneness. Now, we do have a choice of whether or not to express it. We do have a choice in Ephesians that talks about whether to maintain it in some visible ways, but we don't have a choice about unity. We are one. I love the way one scholar put it when he says this, in Christ, the church is already a unified body, even if that unity is not being adequately expressed. It's organic oneness is a gift of grace. Now listen to this line, the Christian community simply needs to enact what already is. 
I'm telling you, that, that one line summarizes much of what Paul does in the entire New Testament. He says, here's who you are, and then he says, go be who you are. <laughs> be who you already are in Christ. You are one. And he gives a couple of powerful metaphors to unpack our identity that we walked in the room as, that we go out of this place as, this oneness in Christ. First of all, he says, we have a common experience. He says, we have been baptized in the Spirit. And so often we've used this language to, in, throughout Christian history to divide over different forms and different meanings and different timing and all of that. Here, that's not what is in view. What is in view is the effect of the Holy Spirit saying, I'm immersing you into the life of God. What does the Great Commission say? We are uh, training people to be disciples and baptizing them into what reality? Into the name of, the possession of, the relationship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, you've all been immersed into the very relationship and oneness of the Holy Spirit of God. We have a common experience. But when I was reading it this time, one thing just grabbed me. I mean, I've, I've always kind of seen that language and focus on it. Did you notice the second image he gives? And, and I just kind of sat in this almost for a day. I'm just like, Paul, what are you doing here? He says, we don't just have a common experience. We have a common drink. Did you notice that? We have all drunk of the same spirit. What's going on in his mind here? Well, we know that throughout scriptures, there's images of the Holy Spirit being poured out upon his people. Jesus talks about uh, uh, the, the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit is like a well that rises up inside of us. And I'm wondering, so much of what Paul is writing about here comes out of his Jewish mindset. In the Jewish community, your worship sacrifices were not individual acts, they were communal. So if you came and you brought a bull to sacrifice, the command was to eat it. You're not going to eat a bull alone. What did you have to do? You had to call the neighbors. And you would come and bring a drink offering, and you would, you would offer it before the Lord. You would pour some of it out, but then you would share it. Paul has it. We, we have this picture that we are drinking a common drink. And I was thinking about this. What a great metaphor, because it's continued throughout the ages. Isn't this true that our drinks actually bring us together? Sometimes they could separate, but that's kind of what we do. In fact, I imagine I could get kind of a little debate going on if I said, are you a Coke person or are you a Pepsi person? <laughs> They've literally had what they call cola, what? Wars over what you drink. <laughs> uh, by the way, we're here in Tennessee, so it may not be Coke or Pepsi, it might be what? What'd you say? <laughs> Uh, sweet tea is what I'm thinking, right? That's like, that's the next sacrament, isn't it, right? It's hot chicken and sweet tea. I mean, that, right? The, well, maybe tea people are, just think about this. Our drinks bring us together. I was talking with somebody the other day. We spent five minutes talking about how much we like coffee. Our drinks are intended to bring us together. We're not Coke people. We're not Pepsi people. Do you know, go, if you want a really interesting kind of discussion, this is just a side thing, but it relates to what I'm saying here on the cola wars and the whole battle back in the day where Pepsi was winning the taste test and all that stuff, Malcolm Gladwell's book called Blink, you can look up, there's a whole section on what Coke missed when they brought out the new Coke. Some of you are too young to know what this is about, so it's a cool experience. Here's the reality. What they missed, what Coke missed, is that when you take a drink, you're not just taking a drink blindly, you're taking a drink and your senses associate everything you've done together with that drink. So there's something about the Coke logo or the Pepsi logo, if you've experienced that together at a ball game or, or the first time that you went to a movie theater with your 
uh, soon-to-be wife or husband or whatever. You associate all of that. Paul says it's true with the drink that we share in the Holy Spirit. We don't drink blind here. We share a common drink, and it draws us together in Christ. By the way, this is deeper than just kind of nostalgia and thinking about this. Again, Paul is writing as a Jewish Christian. And every time he talks about, don't miss this, this is, this is some deep stuff going on. When he's talking about the Holy Spirit of God making a body, he has in mind Genesis 1 and 2. Go read that. Go read Psalm chapter 8. And what you will find is that the Holy Spirit of God, picture this, hovers over creation as a painter over a blank canvas when the world, listen to me, was in chaos. And the Holy Spirit of God took what was in chaos and brought it to order. God has put it together. When I sit with my deputy and he says, I can't do it. I can't get him listen to listen. You better believe you can't because only the Spirit of God can take chaos and bring order and oneness out of it. Paul has this in mind. He also has in mind that when the Holy Spirit back in creation made a body and another body, those bodies were called to a particular job description. Talk about this all the time. Don't ever forget this. You know what the job description is of the human race? My favorite image of this. Here's the language in Scripture. We were created to be an image of the living God. Here's my favorite picture of this. N.T. Wright says, We were created to be an angled mirror to reflect God into the world. Here's the question, church. That's what we're created for. We are one. How are we doing? How are we doing reflecting the unity and the oneness of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit to a divided and conflicted world? How are we doing? See, God has put us together. But here's the problem. Sometimes we think that our connections are about us. We think this is all about us, what our preferences are. Even the analogy I use can help us fall into that problem because I prefer Coke or I prefer Pepsi or I prefer tea or coffee. Here's the problem. Let me, let me bring this. This is straight out of Scripture from human history. One reality you can bank on for your life. If you base the connections and relationships in your life around what makes you comfortable and we're around what you prefer, you will end up being alone. Hear me. If you base your relationships and your connections just on you, on what makes you comfortable, what makes me feel good, what personalities and preferences and all of that that I choose, you will end up being alone. Well, you may have a group of people around you, but they will be alone, isolated, and disconnected from the world around. Because the Holy Spirit of God keeps saying here, we were created to be one but many. We were created to be one but diverse. By the way, I'm not talking about diverse in unhealthy or unholy or non-faith statement ways. I'm talking about different giftedness, different perspectives, different personalities that we might not even be comfortable with at times. And yet God invites us into the oneness of that. Hear me. If I make choices about the relationships of my life based on my preference and my comfort level alone, I'll end up being alone. This is an extreme example of this, but I could never get the terrifying symbolism of this out of my mind. I was a young minister, a new minister, serving on a college campus, and I remember one of our students came from a tradition. I'm not picking on this. I'm just saying we all can get things that we don't just think about or believe in. We will divide over, 
And again, I'm not talking about core death, burial, resurrection of Jesus stuff. I'm talking about sub stuff. And he came from what is known as a one cup tradition. Some of you may have no idea what I'm talking about. Some of you do. What that means is that his faith community said, you don't just take communion. You don't just take it every week. You take it and it's all got to be out of one cup. By the way, there's some powerful symbolism there. By the way, I would also say before you kind of pick on that, the majority of Christians in the world do that. You just got to count people as Christians. We didn't use to count as Christians, but you know, the, the Catholics and the Orthodox will have one cup often and you will dip it or sip it or whatever it is. There's nothing wrong with that. Here's the problem in his particular faith community. If you didn't do it that way, you couldn't take communion. And I'll never forget this. He would come to our events and he would come to activities we would have, but he would sit, listen to this, alone on Sunday morning in his dorm room and take communion. I'm not picking on him. I really am not. But I remember I would go to his dorm room and I would sit down with him. And I said, Frank, it's not his name. Do you realize the incredible inconsistency in the symbol God has given us and what you're doing right now? You're taking communion alone. Now, I don't want to force you to change. I'm not forcing anything on you. I said, at the very least, can I come early before church and we'll take communion together in one cup if you need to do it. But there's got to be something that brings us together. Hear me. If I make my choices based on my preferences and my personality and, my cho- and what makes me comfortable, I will end up being just as alone as my friend was in that dorm room. It may be alone in a group, but we will be alone and missing part of the body of Christ. And Paul says, that's absurd. Imagine being one big eye. That's what was happening in that dorm room that day. Here's the thing. The text talks about preferences in our relationship. Somebody does have a preference in the relationships we're connected with. It's just, it's not about you or me. God is the one with the preference. Did you hear that? Again, read verse 18 again. This is so important. In fact, who puts us together? God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as I wanted it, just as I prefer Just as I feel comfortable? No, just as he wanted it to be. God has a preference to put people together. By the way, isn't God masterful at putting people in our circles of influence in our lives that drive us nuts? Isn't he great at that? Isn't he wonderful at bringing people into the spiritual family, your family, your workplace, that will drive you nuts? He's been doing it since the very beginning. And hear me, God prefers it that way. Uh, Just think of a couple of examples. I think of Paul and Barnabas, the great missionary team. You've got hard-charging Paul. Paul can blister you with a word in Scripture, and then he's kind of quiet and timid when he's there in present. But he will let you know that he is going to reach new frontiers, and he puts them together with the son of encouragement, Barnabas. Or think about the Marys in Scripture. You have Mary, the mother of Jesus, who is patient and playing the long game and treasuring things up in her heart that she doesn't understand. And then you see Mary Magdalene, who was exercised of demons and who is mentioned more often than almost anybody else in the discipleship group other than Peter and James and John because she's probably a powerful leader in that community and witnessing and testifying. And he puts them together in this group of people. Or anybody that's heard me teach, I say this all the time, I think this is so symbolic. Jesus made a leadership team that, among other things, his 12 apostles included 
a zealot, and a tax collector. If you know anything about history and that culture, what that is, is an Al-Qaeda member and a member of Israeli parliament together on the same leadership team. How well would that go? But this is what God says. God placed the relationships in the body of Christ just as God wanted. I've used this image again and again, but it is so important. Richard Lamb wrote a book where he talks on this chapter about the, the work of God putting us together in relationships that rub against us from time to time. His image is of a lapidary tumbler. Have you heard of this before? You know what a lapidary tumbler is? Have you ever had a smooth, polished stone? It's beautiful. You use a paperweight, you use it as a symbol for something. How does it get smooth and polished? You take an old, rugged rock and you throw it into a bunch of other rocks and you put sand and grit and water on it and you beat them against each other and they come out pretty. Welcome to the body of Christ. <laughs> I mean it. Here's what, it makes, what makes it really hard to do church sometimes. When we don't like something, we don't agree with something, we just go to the church down the street. Now, I'm not picking on anything. There's a time to leave and time to go. But God says, I put people in relationship together as I prefer it to be, not as you and I prefer it to be. And what that means, hear this, is you think about whatever circle of influence you have, the circle of people in your life. Your circle is no accident. I want you to think about this. The circle of people in your family, the circle of people probably in your workplace, but so much more important, we know this biblically, the circle of people in your spiritual community are not an accident. God put them here for our growth. <laughs> Sometimes the lapidary tumbler of growth. See, remember, in, the, in this setting here, the Corinthian church struggled with that. They literally wanted to gather together in groups with their little signs that said, I'm, I'm a Paul Christian. And the other group says, I'm an Apollos Christian. And the other says, I'm, well, I'm, I'm right because I'm a Jesus Christian. No. Your circle of influence, the people God put together, are there for you. You don't get to push some out and pull some in. They literally, hear me, the whole book is talking about this. Just a chapter or two before, Paul starts talking about what we just did. The practice of communion together. And you know what they were doing? They had rich folks that were bringing the food because they didn't just take a little appetizer. They had a full agape feast, they called it. And, and the rich folks would come with wine and with food and they would eat it all before the poor people came. And the poor people came up and there was nothing left for them to eat. And you know what Paul said? You can call that meal whatever you want, just don't call it the Lord's Supper because we were all intended to be together at that table. Your circle of influence is no accident. We were put together for a reason. The key verse here is in verse 22. I love this. Paul says, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Take that word in. Parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Now, he's doing some body imagery here, but also that, those are words he uses again and again in this book. He uses it in the book of Romans when people are conflicting over what Paul calls opinions or disputable matters. Paul says there is a weak and a strong. Some people who are strong, their faith will allow them to do certain things. Others that are weaker in their faith can't. He never defines, by the way, which side is strong, which side is weak too much, but he uses this language. So here's the picture. They're spiritual, strong people in the church saying, you know, I don't need those weak Christians over there. I don't need that weak brother. I don't need them. 
Paul says, oh, no, no, hear this, hear this. The people you think are the weaker and the other, Paul says, aren't just kind of in your body. Listen to this. They are indispensable. So I want you to take this in. Let's just hit pause. If you forget everything I say, listen to this. It is entirely possible that the person that you find most difficult to be around is the person you need the most. It's entirely possible that the person or the personality or the giftedness that you find most foreign to you is the one God is saying is, and I quote from Scripture, indispensable to what I want to do in your life. And there were Corinthian Christians who were arrogantly saying, I don't need you, when the Holy Spirit of God says, no, you actually need that person more than anybody else. When you're sitting down at the feast, at your communion table, the rich needed the poor in ways they didn't even know. And what will come up right after this, there are folks that glorified the speaking gifts in the body. And he said, you need the ones that are quieter and behind the scenes and the ones that seem weird and the one that seems that are holding you back and driving you nuts. They're indispensable to where I'm going to take you in the body of Christ. Have you ever thought about that? Just for a moment, I want you to think about your circle of influence. Think about your circle of friends. Think about your family members. Think about those in the body of Christ. It is totally possible that the voice, the person, the personality you find most uncomfortable is the one that God is saying you need the most. We've got a lot of folks here. I love that we have a, a recovery group that meets right before church. I want to read perhaps the most famous line out of 12 left step literature that's ever been written because I think it applies here. It's from the big book of AA and it says, acceptance is the answer to all of my problems today. Boy, couldn't we apply this to what's going on in the world? Listen to this. When I am disturbed... It is because I find some person, place, thing, or situation, some fact of my life, unacceptable to me. <laughs> That's why I'm disturbed. And I can find no serenity until I accept that person, not everything they believe or think, but I accept that person, place, thing, or situation as being exactly the way it's supposed to be at this moment. But here's the magic line. Nothing, absolutely nothing, happens in God's world by mistake. That doesn't mean God's inflicting pain and all that kind of stuff. What, what Paul is saying here is, it is no accident who's sitting in this room with you. Because the Holy Spirit of God said, I need every one of the gifts. I need every one of the perspectives. I need every one of the passions that is sitting in this room to represent the body of Christ. By the way, thank God that we are part of a church that recognizes this. It's not just talking about a local church or even one heritage. We need the larger body of Christ. There are gifts and perspectives and wisdom over the ages that we need together. And we cannot say to that part of the body, sorry, don't need you. God instead says, no, they are indispensable to you. I, I think of a couple examples of this, how we might miss those who mo most irritate us. There was a doctor some years ago named John who was famous. He was brilliant. He was known for bringing together people for um, not only physical health, but mental health as well. In fact, he ran um, a, a kind of a mental health institute. And in that place, he was running and he was doing this. He's publishing books. He's all over the place and, and well-known. And he had a younger brother named Will. And in that particular hospital setting, in the place where he did his work, they needed to eat. And part of what Will did is he made food for him. 
And he even tried to kind of save some money, and he came up with some ways to make a breakfast that they hadn't made before. And here's the thing you got to know about John, the doctor there, is that he consistently mistreated, abused even at times, looked down upon his younger brother. His younger brother's a dreamer. He's always got his head in the clouds, all these crazy lofty ideas. So after they got into such conflict, finally his brother Will said, I'm going to go out and start a business. Can I just have the formula of what we did here while we're here making breakfast? And he did. Do you know the last name of these guys? Kellogg. You know what he signed the rights over to? Cornflakes. What is now a $13.5 billion a year business. Do you think he needed his brother's voice? And we do it every day in the church. We need the ones that we understand sometimes the least. Oh, it's easy to talk about history. I'll talk about my own experience. I remember I was a young minister, and, and I was, again, on a college campus, and there was a guy that was a friend of mine from a different stream in the Christian faith, and we were friends, and we did have the ability to be cordial, but we disagreed about certain things. We sat down, Bibles open one day to kind of explore and, yes, debate a little bit, cordially, though, but debate our different theological positions. And we went through all of that for over an hour, and I remember walking away thinking two things. Number one, I thought, I still think what I believe is true is true. I still stood by my theological position. But the deeper thing I thought was, this man knows Jesus more than I ever did. And even though we may not agree on these certain things, I need to know what he knows about Jesus. And I needed the voice that just five years before I never would have listened to. Hear me. The people that are around you in your life are not there by accident. God placed the parts of the body just as he wanted them to be. And lastly, I want you to hear this. Your presence here is not an accident either. You fit in this place. You matter here, and we need you. The strongest possible language of identity comes in the last verse that we read in verse 27. Paul doesn't say, you're like a body. How many times have you heard me say this in my class? The body of Christ is more than a metaphor. It's not a metaphor. It is an organic spiritual reality. He says, you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And listen, if we don't have you, giving yourself, sharing your gifts and your perspectives, some of them very quietly. You don't have to do it here, and Lord knows you don't have to do it on an hour on Sunday. But we need your gift, and we need your voice, and we need your passion, and we need your perspective. We need you here. One writer puts it this way when he said, there is no such a thing as belonging without participating. <laughs> You're part of the body of Christ. You can't just you know, it doesn't work if one of them doesn't participate. It just doesn't work. By the way, that's not pushing you to go do a bunch of stuff. Don't hear that. Many, many people's voices and gifts will be very quiet, very behind the scenes, not part of some big program. I'm looking at one right now who just sits in our parking lot and loves people when we have the farmer's market. That's a gift, my friend. That's a gift. I'm looking at people that will walk with me for an hour and a half make my life better than it was when I started. And you won't almost ever see them stand up here. We need you in this place. 
That's why a month ago I gave you this picture of what it looks like uh, in adult discipleship and spiritual formation to try to practice and live out the beautiful mission statement that our shepherds have given us, to love God, serve others, and find Jesus. And and we talk about kind of the big picture of this, and I told you a month ago we're going to be thinking about that top right box. Last time, and again, do this now. Just say, God, which, which one of these things are... Are you calling me to step deeper into, connecting up to you, to, to worship and to love God in meaningful ways? Maybe it's to, to, to connect out and to change and serve the world in missions and those kind of things. Maybe it's to go deeper in discipleship groups. But here's what I want to invite everybody here to experience. Connect in. Let me just say it as simply as I can. Because it's not, I'm not talking about a program, although there's program stuff here. Connect to some group that's small enough for you to know and be known by others. I'm not talking about you have to know, don't start with your life story, that's going deeper, that's the kind of going down part. You just connect into a group that's smaller than this. And so we do have life groups, and, and there are pictures and their names all over the room of life groups that are meeting, and leaders that are there, and after service, I'm going to just ask them to kind of hang out in that area. Even if your group is, is a group that's kind of covenant level group and you're not necessarily taking in new folks, you can tell people about what the group life is about and you can connect somebody with folks that are, that are uh, wanting to find groups. We're trying to make it as simple as possible. It, it's not this, hey, big epic, we're expecting 20,000 names. We're just making it easy for you. So talk to the folks there. In both lobbies, there's a place where you can physically sign things up and we live in the 21st century. By the time you leave church today, you will... You will get a text message that Catherine has made possible. By the way, Catherine makes all these things possible. You'll get a text message, and if you're not part of a group and you want to be connected to a group, you just, you just respond to that text, and we'll get you connected to the groups that are open. That's a simple way to do it. Here's one step further I want to go, and I want to just thank Nikki for, for bringing this uh, perspective, this idea from uh, the church she came from. She said, you know, one of the simple things that they did is every month they took 30 seconds in the announcement time to have life group leaders stand. So can we practice this? If you're a leader of a life group in any way, some small group of anyone in this church, would you please stand up? Just for a second. You don't have to say anything. You don't have to dance or sing. Just stand up. And you'll see them after service. That's what we're going to do. Take a look around. If you're not in a group, take a look around. Pick one of them. Go talk to them. Ask them questions. Thank you that you're done. We're going to do that. Here's the thing. We don't just do it at the beginning, and then if they didn't have to be here on sign-up Sunday, people don't hear about it. Once a month, we're going to take those 30 seconds and say, here's your life group leaders. Go talk to them. Ask a question. Again, you may not, your group may not be open, but you can take them to somebody who is, right? And maybe we can even go through the whole quick pathway and say, you know, talk to Miss Nancy if you want to go deeper with God, because it's not just about connecting up with God here in this room, right? It's in spiritual practices. Talk with our missions committee and our our uh, local missions committee about going there. Talk to the folks that are doing uh, DBS and if tables and all that. Do you see what I'm saying? Here, here's the thing. Don't let the opportunity of gathering here in the community go by without saying, okay, I don't want to be that fo foot hanging over on the side of the road. I want to come together in the body of Christ. We need you. We need you coming together. Here's the thing. I, 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 it leads to what I said to our life group leaders, but I'm just giving just a real current example. The last week I met with one of the small groups I'm a part of. And I realized every one of us in the group, every one of us was facing some kind of devastation or pain or brokenness. Some of us have lost people that we deeply love. Some of us brought that into the room. Others brought things that were going on at work and all these other things. And it reminded me of something. Again, I shared this with our life group leaders, but I love this. It was gold some years ago. One of my dear friends said when he had gone through just a terrible loss in his life, he said, he said this, look, 
He said, I love the fact that when I went through the most difficult, painful loss of my life, there was already a group in place when the crisis hit. He didn't have to manufacture relationships, they were there. And I'm looking at some people that have practiced that in such a way that when the loss and the crisis and the difficulty, or the great joy, right, happens, there's a group of people that you can do that life together with. We want to encourage you to connect in. Life groups are not the only way to do it. Albert has an incredible class that he's teaching where he's just speaking of his wisdom over, over time in Scripture and in life. Will, I don't know if you're doing your, your class yet, um, but, but he will be. We're starting a, a new class upstairs, and yes, there will be coffee again upstairs. Thank you, Laura. Um, we're going to meet again in our Connections class, and what we're doing over the course of the next seven weeks is we're going we're gonna to do this class called Enter the Epic of God. What does it look like just to have an overview of the story of God, the life of God, in a way that if you haven't heard that before, most of us have, you can hear that, but also in a way that we can help ourselves know how to share that with our friends. So that's what we're going to be doing in the next seven, seven, seven weeks. So come connect in a group like that. It's a smaller room. It's a place where you can know and be known. Find some way to connect together in the life of God. Um, and so I, I end with this. There, I love telling the story. I tell everywhere I go. Because it made an impact on me in the first, we didn't call it a life group, but I think the first life group I would identify with was a, a group of, of kids that kind of ran around the church building in my church growing up after church was over. You know, our little group of, of friends. And the person that helped define that group so much was a man named Mr. Farley. And you know what I love about Mr. Farley? He never had a title in the church. Never had any kind of visible role. You never saw him standing in a place like this. And yet he transformed my life in the community of God from a young age. And he modeled for me everything Paul's talking about here. Because what he would bring every week, put the picture up there of this, is these things. Now it looked kind of gross now, but it was great when we were kids. I don't know if you've seen these before. It's like Necco wafers or somewhere. But they're wintergreen, which makes no sense because they're pink. But he would bring this bag of pink candies every week. And one of us lucky kids got the opportunity to be the recipient of the bag. And he would come and he would give it to us. And of course, we struggled. We're little kids. What do you think we wanted to do, right? But he would let us and we would take some. But then it was our responsibility, I love Mr. Farley, to go and share that with the rest of the group. Now, here's what I learned from Mr. Farley long before I read this text. Two things he taught me with that bag of candy. Number one, you matter. You matter. I never forget it. That's why I love you, Conley. That's why I love, I love the young people in this, in this congregation because there was a man that said... I don't care if you can pass out communion or pray a prayer in front of the church. You matter to me, number one. Number two, you've got a job here to let other people know they matter too and their voice matters too. Can we live out the lesson of Mr. Farley and Paul who testified to this before? Every one of us has a gift. Everyone belongs, even the ones that you think shouldn't be here. <laughs> we all get to be part of the body of Christ. And I'm telling you, if we live that out, because it's already true, if we just live it out, it is literally what the world is crying out for. Father God, we give you praise for putting people and relationships together in ways we never could. I thank you that your Holy Spirit, who was the creative force hovering over the waters and the canvas of your unformed creation, still hovers over the body of Christ today. Father God, I'm so grateful that you put us together as you want us to be, not as we would choose. Father, what do we miss out on? 
when we ignore or marginalize voices in the body of Christ that you said are indispensable. Father, let us live this out in a way that brings glory and honor and praise to your name in ways that we can appreciate the depths of the wonder of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray.